Welcome to all who join us this morning from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Welcome also to all joining us on KFUO 850 AM and worldwide at KFUO.org. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. It's a pleasure to have all of you with us this morning. We're going to continue in our series of looking ahead to the assigned scripture lessons for the coming Sunday. And today is our last day here at St. Paul's of the four-part sermon series that we've been doing in, in uh, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So today's lessons that we are looking at will be the ones that you will be, for our, our radio listeners, will be hearing uh, most likely in your congregations next Sunday. So we'll be looking at these in some depth and talking especially about what they mean for us in our daily walk with our Savior. For that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we were reminded through your word again this day, through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, we are pronounced righteous in your sight. We are clothed with the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we thank you for the assurance that as we gather here, we do, do so with sins forgiven and knowing that all is right between us and you. We pray your blessing upon us and the Holy Spirit's guidance as we look together into your word. May we continue to grow in our knowledge of you and also of your will for us as your children. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to take a look at the lessons for this coming Sunday, September 3. And as I say week after week when I'm leading this class, when you come into church on Sunday, a great place to look to see where the theme is going for that particular Sunday is that prayer that we call the Collect. And the Collect usually appears right before the Scripture readings in most of our services. And the Collect is a short prayer, and as its name uh, would indicate, collects the main theme or themes for that day that we'll see reflected in the Scripture lessons, especially the Old Testament and the Gospel lesson. And today, it does so beautifully. Let's take a look at the collect as it is printed on the top of the page that we have here in front of us. Almighty God, your Son willingly endured the agony and shame of the cross for our redemption. Grant us courage to take up our cross daily and follow wherever he leads. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, so this is in the typical uh, format or form of a collect. We start by addressing God. We have something, usually we will either thank or praise him or acknowledge something that he has done. Notice in this case, we are acknowledging that his son, Jesus Christ, of course, willingly endured the agony and shame of the cross for our redemption, then we're asking, the petition that we are asking is that we are given the courage to take up our cross and follow him daily, okay, wherever he leads. So if you just read that, you haven't looked at any scripture lessons yet for this Sunday, this coming Sunday, what word at least do you see twice there in the collect? Cross, cross. We're going to be talking, and you'll see it beautifully reflected in the scripture lessons, 
about the cross, we might say, in other words, the cross of Jesus Christ and our crosses that we bear. So we acknowledge the cross that Christ bore for all of us and for our redemption, and then we ask that we might be given the courage to bear our crosses daily as we follow him. And we're going to be talking about that, especially in the gospel lesson and the Old Testament lesson. And again, remember, those are the two lessons that normally the themes will run together, and we'll see how they do today. All right, we're going to start with Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. Now, this is the encounter that Jesus has with Peter, and it comes right after probably one of Peter's finest hours. Uh, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus in, is with the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, and remember Jesus asks the disciples, and this is in the verses right before this, in fact, let's just look briefly at starting at uh, verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And when you visit Caesarea Philippi, we were just there in January, this question takes on bigger meaning because at Caesarea Philippi, you had a place, an out, uh, outdoor place where you could come and there was a large rock structure that went up and the rock structure has a bunch of niches in it and each one of those niches would be the resting place for a false god. And you could come there and pray to as many or as few of the false gods as you wanted to. This, of course, is the pagan practice. And so Jesus is walking in this area, and he asked the disciples, you know, here are all these other false gods. Who are people saying that I am? And the disciples answer going on. Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, other Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So at least they're, they're narrowing it down to non-pagan, uh, but they're, they're thinking none of them has the answer quite right yet. And then Jesus asked the all-important question, but you, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter, of course, makes that great confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus commends him and says that flesh and blood did not, did not deliver this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay? And so that we're, they're coming right, right on the heels of this now, comes our text for today. So Peter has been commended by the Lord. He makes a beautiful confession of faith. It is accurate. Christ commends him for it. Now comes what we get today. Let's read through on the sheets, Matthew 16, 21 through 28, and then we'll go back and kind of take this apart. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All right, so Peter goes, in just a few verses here, from being commended by Christ for the confession of faith that he made to being addressed as the mouthpiece for Satan. And so from a tremendous high to a tremendous low, you might say, in, in a matter of just a few verses. Let's go back to verse 21. From that time, you know, earlier than this, Jesus, it just was not time yet for Jesus to make the final push to the cross. In the Gospel of Mark, for example, we find many times where Jesus does a miracle, and it's always, it's always in the case of a miracle in front of Jews, that he says, tell no one. And we think to ourselves, well, that's kind of strange. Why wouldn't he want everybody to be told about this? And again, it just wasn't his time yet, okay? It's all on his timetable. And now the time has come. He knows it's, it's the equivalent of in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 9:51, which is the, the hinge verse in Luke, where it says Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And it's the same thing here. The time has come for him to finally now go to the cross. Okay? Notice there, he began to show his disciples. And so this is the beginning of the process here of getting the disciples ready for what was going to occur. It's beginning right now in the Gospel of Matthew. Notice there, he must go to Jerusalem. Uh, some other translations have it as it, was, it is necessary. Uh, and so we speak of the necessity of the cross. Now there's really two reasons why the cross is necessary. What would one of those reasons be? Why is the cross a necessity for Jesus? Our sins, exactly. That's the, that might say the negative reason. It's because of our sin that he goes to the cross. The necessity that he suffer in our place. And there's a second one that is it's the Father's will for him to do this. Uh, remember he says he came not to do his own will, but the will of his Father who sent him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to pray, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, if there's another way, if there's another method to do this, but remember he adds, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So there's really kind of a two-pronged uh, reason here that we might say the cross is necessary. It's absolutely necessary. So he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He calls out the people that are going to inflict this punishment, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He predicts he's going to be killed. Doesn't say crucified here, but killed. And he predicts the resurrection. 
be raised on the third day be raised. And so he is predicting exactly what is going to come in a way of preparing the disciples for this. But you know, before we just kind of gloss over this, what impact does this have on you? That Jesus was able to predict exactly what was going to happen. That make us feel good, bad, indifferent? Right? Right. Yes. As Fred said, this is actually is now Jesus is quoting the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3.15. He's going to send one to crush the head of Satan. Okay. Good or bad that Jesus can predict this to the, to the very detail? Good. Uh, you know, it, it, some, some uh, more liberal scholars might uh, like to assert that, you know, Jesus was just a victim of circumstances. He was caught off guard. He really, uh, you know, things just got away from him. No, not at all. Uh, in fact, the biblical account is just the opposite. He sets the timetable. He calls the shots. He knows exactly what's coming. He wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't making it up as he went along. He knows exactly what's coming. And that's the very reason he came, okay? So for us, this should be comforting to see him predicting this exactly as it's going to transpire, okay? Now going on, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You know, it's kind of a contrast. Jesus begins to show them. Peter begins to rebuke Jesus and saying, far be it from you. Now, uh, this can also be translated. This is a very hard phrase to translate. It, it comes out sort of the same, but it can also be translated uh, to the effect of, may God have mercy on you. In other words, if God does, uh, may God not allow this to happen to you, okay? And notice here, uh, he goes on, this shall never happen to you. In the, in the original language, in the Greek language, there are various uh, strengths of when you protest something. This is the strongest strongest way to protest something. In other words, there's no way that this is going to happen to you. You know, it's, I don't know what the uh, uh, English equivalent would be of this, but never, 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 never is this going to happen to you. Yeah, over my dead body. <laughs> well, no pun intended there. But, you know, there's, there's no way that this is going to happen. Okay? So going on then, uh, and he turned, but he turned, as Jesus here, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, why would Jesus say to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan? That seems kind of harsh. Peter is actually voicing whose desire here? Satan's desire that Jesus not go to the cross. And so he's actually, he's gone from, from uh, again, being commended for his uh, correct, but revealed, but correct identification of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, 
to now being the spokesperson for Satan. Now, you know, it's kind of interesting that you, you, get, the, you get the impression that as the time gets closer and closer, that Satan is turning up the heat a little bit as well. Where was the first attempt to keep Jesus from going to the cross by Satan? Let, let's just say, uh, let's say uh, as Jesus was on this earth, we could go way back, I, guess, I suppose, but as Jesus was on this earth, where was the first attempt to keep him from going to the cross? Cain Herod. Herod. Bud's got it up here right front. What did Herod do again? Orders all male children, two years and under in Bethlehem, to be destroyed, be killed. Thinking what? We got him, right? He's not going to get to the cross. Of course, God knew better and warns Joseph in a dream. They go off to Egypt. Right after Jesus is baptized, what does Satan do? Tempts him in the wilderness, right? Just bow down and worship me and all this will be yours, right? In other words, don't go to the cross, okay? After uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000 men, we don't know how many women and children, with five loaves of bread and two fish, what do the people want to do? Come and take him to be what? Their earthly king. Yep. What a great king that would be, huh? What a great, what a great food program. Everybody would eat and, and have their fill. But if he's an earthly king, what does that mean? He's not going to go. Yeah, set yourself up here as an earthly king, you know. You get all the power. You get all the glory. Don't go suffer and die on a cross and be condemned, okay? Uh, Garden of Gethsemane, which, by the way, is so close that, and at night, you could certainly see across the Kidron Valley the torches coming with a temple guard to arrest him. And Jesus could have taken off right at that point and gone into the wilderness and tried to escape. But after they come and take hold of Jesus, remember what happened? Good old Peter again picks up a sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, one of the Roman soldiers. So where's the temptation again? All the disciples rise up. Let's keep this from happening. Don't, in other words, don't have him go to the cross. And what does Jesus say? Put down your sword or sheathe your sword. And he actually, don't you think I could call on legions of angels and actually hear, heals Malchus's ear. Finally, last-ditch effort on the cross. What are the mockers saying to him? Come down from that cross. If you're the Christ, save yourself. If you can save others, why can't he save himself? You see, my point is that there are many points along the way here where Satan tried through other people and sometimes directly to keep Christ from going to the cross. And we can give thanks to God that none of those, of course, were successful. That the Son of God prevails, in a sense, and does the mission or the will of the Father going to the cross in our place. But repeatedly, not just through this one incident here with Peter, uh, saying, don't do that, no, that's never going to happen to you, but other places as well, Satan was at work uh, to try and thwart or keep from happening Christ's atonement on the cross for the sins of the world. Okay, so this was serious business. Now, uh, as he says there, you're a hindrance to me. Uh, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. 
okay? Then, verse 24, and this is a key verse, verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, three things, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's three things there. Let's talk about the first one. What does it mean to deny yourself? It's a hard thing for sinful human beings to do. Well, you don't put yourself first, but you put Christ first. Yes, you do not put yourself. It's the opposite of putting yourself first, isn't it? It is instead of, you know, it's exactly what Christ expressed. He's not come to be served, but to serve to realize that I am not the focal point here, but Christ is, right? Um, there was an old expression that um, uh, we used to, this is a joke now, at the seminary, would say that when, when the first-year students come in, the first class, the, the, uh, we had a professor who used to like to say way back, that there is a God and you are not him. <laughs> And uh, they, the point being made that if you think about what are, what are now the things of man, what is our tendency as sinful human beings? Be first, be powerful, be served, have other people serving us. We're most important, right? We're the center, we're the focus, you know? We even look at advertising sometime on television or radio. It's all geared in that direction, right? And uh, have it your way, wasn't that a, a phrase from the past? And uh, uh, all those different ads, they all kind of feed that same, same uh, sinful tendency in us to want to be first, right? Remember, how did that, how did that demonstrate itself with the disciples? On more than one occasion, what did they do? Argue about what? Which one of them is going to be the best servant? No, which one's going to be first, you know? And then the mother of James and John, she comes and what does she say? Lord, let my two sons be the best servants that you've ever seen. No, let them have the positions of power and prominence, one at your right and one at your left when you come into your kingdom. These are the things of man, as Jesus says. It's all about power. It's all about glory. It's all about success and succeeding, okay? Now, uh, just a little comment. I think in um, some modern Christian music, listen for this theme sometimes and ask yourself, in this song, is Christ my Savior from sin or is he the one who helps me overcome obstacles in this world? Okay, that's all I'm going to say. And so it, Christ is our Savior from sin. It may not be that we are going to surmount every obstacle here on the face of the earth. In fact, uh, we're not. Okay? And so uh, it, it is the way of man versus the things of God. So let's just say the opposite then. What are the things of God? It's the weak, the, the, what appears to the world to be weakness and defeat. Death on a cross, the worst thing you could endure, the shameful thing. It was, it was reserved for the worst of the, of the criminals of the day. That's what the Son of God does. 
That's the things of God. Yes. Right. Right, right. Yeah, the comment uh, Hillary just made is that the overcoming in a lot in some of the Psalms today could mean overcoming the sinful flesh, the temptations of Satan, those and obviously nothing wrong with that. That's that's absolutely right on. Okay? Uh, but going back now, the, the things of God look to this world like they are weak like they are defeat, like they are uh, in great humility versus the things of man. And just take a look at 1 Corinthians 1 sometime where Paul talks about the foolishness of the cross, right? That Jews seek signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, right? So the Jesus is really giving them a lesson here. He's tried so many times to get this across to the disciples that in the kingdom, it's not about being served. It's not about the things of man and power and glory and pomp and circumstance. It's about the, the way of the cross. And so, again, remember that collect. You went to the cross, O Lord. Help us daily to have the courage to take up our cross and follow wherever that may lead, okay? Um, so deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, okay? Now, let's just talk for a minute. Uh, I should say a word also. When we use the phrase cross, we have a way, uh, and I'm not saying this is wrong, but we have a way just in our everyday vocabulary. If I have a bad arthritic knee, okay, I might say, you know, I guess that's just the cross I have to bear. Or if I have a car that, that you know, doesn't start all the time, I say, yeah, it's just the cross I have to bear, I guess. And so we, we can tend to use that phrase, a cross, in a very sort of general, any sort of hardship, any sort of trial that we have. But in the scriptures, when the scriptures speak of a cross, they are speaking about a hardship or an affliction that we have as a direct result of being a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, if we weren't a follower of Jesus Christ, we would not have this hardship, okay? So this is a much more narrow definition of a cross than we ordinarily would use in our common parlance in talking about this, okay? So for the disciples, what were those crosses going to be? For these disciples, they're going. Are are the when they now go out, uh, are they are going to be persecuted by the Jews for blasphemy, preaching uh, uh, the Jews would say false things that Christ is in fact what Peter said he was just a few verses ago. Um, you're going to have paganism coming in from the Greeks, who are going to have a, a bunch of false gods. And in the midst of all that, the disciples are going to have to go out and preach Christ crucified and risen again. And eventually, what's the ultimate cross that they're going to bear? Yeah, uh, martyrdom. Uh, again, 
outside of the scriptures, uh, by, by human tradition outside of the scriptures, we believe that all but one of them actually died as a martyr, and that would be John, and even John was exiled to the island of Patmos uh, for some time. So they are going to ultimately uh, uh, face, and in fact, in the case of Peter, for example, we were talking about here, uh, tradition has it he was crucified upside down because he's, he said he's not worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. So they literally are going to bear, ultimately, some of them in the future, a cross, but they're going to have many crosses to bear as they go. Now, how about us today? What are our crosses uh, here in the United States of America, let's be more specific here. Uh, what crosses do we have as Christians? I'm sorry? Okay, poor health. Now, again, we want to look for crosses that are just as a result of our being a Christian. So just, just things that we face, hardships we face as a result of being a Christian. Yes, we are not always politically correct. And, and that's usually when we will say, and I don't think any of us goes out of our way to be this way, but when in the midst of uh, a lot of other um, things being accepted around us as, again, nothing wrong, uh, we would say, no, the Word of God is pretty clear on this, and it's not really okay, uh, according to the Word of God. And that's not me saying that. That's what God has said in his word so uh so we may and, and so then what's the result after we might say something like that uh, everything from what being sort of marginalized to dismissed to uh being called a purveyor of hate speech or you know i mean it can it can really get uh unfortunately uh pretty bad uh for us hillary Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hillary is saying that. Ah, okay, okay. So Hillary is saying that, unfortunately, many times we may shrink away from saying anything and just kind of go with the flow, don't, don't say anything, or just kind of agree even maybe. And remember, again, what's the collect saying? Give us the courage to take up our cross and follow wherever he may lead. Okay. All right, so that's one area, the whole area of political correctness and maybe speaking up and then as a result uh, having uh, less than positive things happen in a, in a, toward us. A lot of times we um, take pressure from friends or family. Okay. Not, you don't have to go to church on Sunday, but don't expect that. Oh, okay. All right, so the pressure from friends and family, even on Sunday morning, to, to steer us in another direction. Uh, away from the Lord's house, away from worship, and come on, you know, you don't, you, you just there last week, you don't have to do this again, do you? Anybody else? Carla? Okay. All right. Yeah, we've seen a great rise. The comment Carla made was about sports on Sunday morning and actually scheduling uh, sports for, and making a real uh, tough situation for those who have small children. Uh, you know, I, I got to say, I really appreciate, I've seen this so many times here at St. Paul's, 
where um, someone will come to a Saturday night service planning ahead because a child has a soccer game on a Sunday, or will come to an early service in a soccer uniform because they're going to have to get right out of here and get to the game. So, uh, but you're right. It, 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 for parents, then, you know, that is a cross they that they bear because they know it's important to be uh, in in the Lord's house and receiving God's gifts on Sundays. Yes, Mary. Yeah, people getting in trouble for praying uh, publicly. Uh, I saw a, a case where a coach, football coach, uh, just this last week's story came out, is no longer allowed to pray with his team. So there, there are a lot of these things. And just in general, uh, you know, the thing that I always wonder, too, how many times don't we know about the, uh, the cross we're bearing? Is, you know, people kind of marginalize us. Even perhaps some people in their employment, uh, you know, if it's known that they're a Christian and the boss is not, uh, that may change the person's opinion of you, uh, and, and so on. So there can be many ways that crosses are, are borne by us. And see, again here, Jesus is saying that deny self, take up cross, and follow me. And we're praying just in the same regard in that collect to give us the courage to do this. And of course, we can't underestimate or uh, forget the fact that in some parts of the world, uh, you literally could be putting your life on the line as a result of making that confession that Peter made about Christ. Uh, we tend to forget that. It's so, you know, so uh, comfortable here to be a Christian in the United States, but that's not the way it is around the world. And uh, we pray, we Try to remember to pray uh, from the altar for missionaries, for those who are in harm or danger, especially that they be given, just as we said in the, in the collect here, the courage uh, to be able to make that confession of faith, knowing that it may cost them their you know, physical life uh, here on this earth. Okay? So take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, verse, verse 25 now, whoever would save his life will lose it, Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Kind of a confusing, maybe, sounding statement. But to save your life is to, uh, I guess we might say it's parallel to having the things of man in mind, right? That I'm going to live for here and for me. To lose our life is to, you might say, let go of it. And it belongs to Jesus. And I follow him, and I serve him. And notice Jesus says, doesn't say there, lose his life, but lose his life for my sake. Okay? Now let's not forget that there's a, there's a very realistic way that the disciples may be hearing these words. You know, I'm interpreting it metaphorically here, or figuratively, lose our life. But again, for those disciples, literally losing their life for his sake will find it. And that's what most of them are going to be called upon to do. Finding it, of course, is a reference to eternal life and the life, uh, the abundant eternal life that only Christ can give. It's only through him that we receive it. Okay? Then going on, uh, a great perspective, isn't it, in verse 26? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world 
and forfeits his soul. So if he goes to the ultimate extent of living, uh, or of, uh, living in the way of the things of man and is ultimately successful in everything and as a result forfeits his soul. There's a, uh, there's a brand new commercial on, <clears throat> I think it's GMC, but don't quote me well, <laughs> on the radio now. Uh, but uh, where they start off the commercial saying that what do you want to be? And, and they go through a good husband, a good father, a good this, a good that. And then they say, as if to say, no, that's not enough. You want to triumph. You want to be the best. You want to, you know, and it just feeds right into this. And you know, when you stop and think about it, isn't every sin just like this in microcosm? It seems so good at the time, doesn't it? But what is the ultimate cost? And it's a matter of perspective here that Jesus is delivering to his disciples and to all of us. You can have it all in this world, and what good is that if eternally you end up, and notice it's the word forfeit, you're, you're giving over, you're giving up your soul. And so, you know, that's, that's the ultimate question, I guess, in this entire verse. And Jesus encourage, encourages us here to lose our life, to give up on trying to do the things of man uh, and go that route, okay? 27, and the result now, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and he's going to repay each person according to what he has done. Oh, my, our Lutheran antenna just went up, right? Now, we, there's the way we interpret this, obviously Christ is not, is not uh, establishing works righteousness here. By what he has done is simply meant, has he lived the things of man or has he lived the things of God? Has he denied self, taken up his cross and followed him or not? That's the basis of judgment. So is it faith and following Jesus Christ or is it rejection and living for yourself? There's, see, there's no in-between here, as other places in Scripture. You know, if you're not for me, you're against me, right? Um, the wheat and the chaff, you know, there's no in-between. You're either wheat or you're chaff. Uh, you're either, uh, you know, the fish are either thrown out. The good, remember the parable, the good fish and the bad fish? There's no kind of sort of okay fish. You know, they can, they can go on the, the for sale uh, rack. You're either, you're either thrown out or you're in. There's no middle ground, okay? Now, this last verse, I got to say, is a, a very tough one. Uh, and uh, a lot of, there's been a lot written on this. And here's, here, let's just read it first. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death or will not die until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we don't think there's anything, uh, you know, first of all, the taste of death, there's some people who try and make something out of that. We don't think so. It just means to die, experience death, until they see the Son of Man come. Now, there's the, what, what is Jesus talking about here? Right after, uh, here's one theory, right after this comes the transfiguration. And Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, okay? It's kind of interesting that right after Jesus kind of lowers the boom on them here as to what's going to happen, they have the transfiguration. 
And, you know, Peter's so thrilled he wants to stay there and build three booths. He can't, doesn't want to come down and go through all that other stuff Jesus was talking about. Let's just stay up here. Uh, but there's also, and I think this is where most uh, Lutherans come down, is he's, he's going to be talking about what's coming up. In other words, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, the, uh, when Jesus goes to the cross, he prays to the Father ahead of time uh, to glorify his name. Now the hour has come to glorify his name. And it's actually by going to the cross that he glorifies the Father's name. Okay? All right, so there is, uh, <laughs> we've spent a long time on this. Uh, there is the gospel lesson. Uh, we better skedaddle to the Old Testament lesson. And uh, Jeremiah. Now, what we are going to see here is Jeremiah, who is bearing a cross, we might say, as a result of being a prophet of God. Back in those days, uh, they, they would have, this is God's own people. Jeremiah was about uh, in the 620s or so B.C. And remember, Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. Very good. We've got scholars here. 586 B.C. And Jeremiah is telling the people, God's own people, to repent to turn away. He's calling them a corrupt people, including the priests and, and the rulers and the people. He talks about injustice. He talks about idolatry. So in general, how do you think that message went over with God's people? They weren't, they weren't lined up to come and hear Jeremiah. In fact, he faced ridicule. He faced hardship. Um, the, you know, in contrast, they would have these paid prophets. They were on the payroll. And uh, what do you think they told the king? You're the greatest thing since sliced bread and everything's going just fine. Don't worry about a thing. Well, that's what you want to hear, right? Not, not this doom and gloom from Jeremiah, even though it may be true. Uh, but, you know, let's not listen to that. And so Jeremiah here is actually protesting to God. He is not, in, in this sense, is not picking up his cross and following God, or at least he is objecting to the cross he has to bear. Uh, boy, there's a, a pretty sharp thing that's coming up here he's going to say. But let's, let's um, read through this first. Well, let's, we, better, we better take this verse by verse. I don't think we have time to read through it and get back. Um, o Lord, is, uh, starting at verse 15 of Jeremiah 15. O oh Lord, you know. In other words, you know my plight. You know, you're not, you're not oblivious to this. Remember me and visit me. That word for visit is the same one that's used in the Old Testament for redeem me. In other words, save me. Don't just come and visit, but redeem me, save me. And notice, he, what does he want him to do? Take vengeance for me on my persecutors, right? Get back at them. In other words, I'm here as your spokesman, why don't you do something about this? You know, I'm the one suffering here. You know that I'm suffering here. Why don't you do something about it? Okay. So going on, in your, uh, in your forbearance, take me not away. In other words, in your slowness to anger, in other words, you're not, you're not angry enough at these people here. Don't take me away. In other words, again, you're so, you're so calm and patient here. 
Don't, don't be so forbearing to, to the end that I am taken away. I'm wiped out. In other words, again, come and do something about this. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. It, it, it's, you don't know exactly the tone here, but in other words, Lord, it's for you that I'm bearing all of this anyway, right? It's because of you that I've got all this to put up with. Okay, verse 16. Now he goes back and he's going to talk. Your words were found and I ate them. What does it mean to eat the word of God? Your words were found and I ate them. Take it in, digest it, make it your own. It becomes a part of your fabric. You know, I ate them. And notice your words were, were to me a joy. So uh, again, the word of God came to him. It was a joy for him. He took it all in. And the delight of my heart... For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. So he's saying, you know, it, it was so good when your word came to me, and I was filled with joy. I was called by your name. In other words, he's almost thinking back on the good old days when the call first came, right? It was all so good back then. Uh, and notice now, a little self-righteousness here in verse 17. I did not sit... In the company of revelers, uh, those making merry, nor did I rejoice, and I sat alone. So kind of a, you know, kind of have pity on me, Lord. I didn't, I didn't go out and have fun with all those sinners. I sat alone here. In other words, a little self-righteous. And notice why. Because your hand was upon me, or your power, your authority was on me. For you had filled me with indignation. He had filled Jeremiah with indignation at the sinners and their sin. And Jeremiah rightly uh, did not join in with all the sinners. He stood apart from them. Okay? He's reminding God of this, as if God needs reminding. Right? So in other words, I, I didn't join in with them at all. I, I, stayed, I stayed pure. I stayed clean. I sat by myself. Okay, verse 18, why is my pain or my anguish unceasing, or it might say perpetual, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? In other words, his torment is so much at, at being persecuted by, by uh, others as a result of being a man of God. Now, here comes the part, will you be to me like a deceitful brook? like waters that fail boy that is by a deceitful brook if you're if you're in the holy land there are certain uh they're, they're called wadis but they're dry uh, uh sort of like river beds or creek beds and they're only filled with water in the wet season usually and then when the dry season comes what happens to them dry up they dry up and so you, you might come across one of these wadis in the wet season and think, oh, this is a great stream of water here. You know, I'll just set up a residence right here. We'll build right here. And uh, this is going to be great. And then the dry season comes and you find out, oh, this was nothing. Jeremiah is, he's kind of asking it, but he's certainly implying it here. He says, will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? In other words, it looks so great before, 
but are you going to dry up on me and fail me? That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty severe to accuse God of. Uh, but anyway, now notice God doesn't come back and strike him down. God is just the opposite here, is going to call him to repent and assure him of his being reinstated and, in fact, even better than reinstated. Verse 19, therefore, you know, after this, all this, therefore, thus says the Lord. So now here's God talking in response. If you, Jeremiah, return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. Who else was restored after they uh, had a little rough time of, uh, of confessing their faith in Jesus Christ? Yeah, the very guy we were talking about before, Peter. You know, three times denies him. This is a little different here, where, where Jeremiah is just basically complaining about what it means to carry his cross and be a, be a, a prophet. If you utter what, God's saying again to Jeremiah, if you utter what is precious, in other words, if you utter God's words and not what is worthless, in other words, just a bunch of uh, empty chatter, you shall be as my mouth. Okay, so what defines who is a spokesman of God? The one who speaks the word of God and not something else. Okay, and that's what uh, everybody should be expecting to hear, not only here at St. Paul's, but anywhere and everywhere that you go and in, in a, hear a Christian sermon. The word of God, not the word of man. Uh, then you... They shall, the people now, shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. Notice there's a promise there. If you simply speak my word, I know it's not easy, I know you're being persecuted, but I will restore you, the people will turn to you, and not you uh, turning to them. And notice there, I will make you, to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. Now notice the language there. I will make you, for this, to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. Does that sound good or flimsy? Solid or flimsy? Solid, strong. In other words, you're not, you're, they're not going to prevail over you. You are going to prevail. And notice there, notice the eyes in these verses. I will make you. I am with you. Verse 21, I will deliver you. God is promising here that he is going to stand by Jeremiah. Jeremiah will not go down in defeat. Now, just keep your finger here and just turn back, if you would, to Jeremiah 1. And I just want to show you this is almost the exact same thing that uh, God said, addressed to Jeremiah. At the very beginning, uh, early on, I should say, in Jeremiah's ministry, Jeremiah 1, and just look at verses 18 and 19 of Jeremiah 1. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and here's bronze walls, against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord to deliver you. Almost the exact same thing that God said to Jeremiah way back when he called him. 
he says to him again right here. Now let me ask you this. Do we have that same promise of God that Jeremiah had? As we are surrounded and might feel on attack at times, as we've discussed here, do we have that same promise from God? Yes. His ongoing presence. I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, right? Uh, and so it's the same promise of the presence of God and his help and his support that we as modern-day uh, Christians and modern-day followers of Jesus Christ have today. And God promises here deliverance and uh, uh, success in a sense that his word will get through okay finally verse 21 I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp or from the hand of the tyrant okay so it's interesting again the connection here is you've got Jesus saying deny yourself take up your cross and follow me and you've got Jeremiah saying uh, I, I've, I've done all this. I've, I've read your word. It was a great joy to me, but look at what's happening to me. In other words, he is, you might say, the, the uh, opposite of this. He is complaining, and he's angry with God, and even says to God, will you be to me like a deceitful brook? Okay? Um, kind of an interesting point here. Uh, you know, I've sometimes had people ask me, is it wrong to have, let's just say, a spirited discussion with God, uh, such as Jeremiah had here. I mean, small s spirit. I'm not talking about Holy Spirit here. But is it, is it wrong as a Christian to have a real kind of uh, heart-to-heart uh, talk with God about some things and kind of get a little, a little spirited? What do you think? Is that wrong? No. Uh, in fact, I've often said I think that that uh, can be the sign of a strong walking relationship with God. Now, we have to, uh, I will say, though, that this is not limitless in that we don't want to cross that line of, you know, of crossing over into unbelief or, or turning, a back, turning our back on God. And that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about someone who might at the loss of a job, at the loss of a loved one, uh, at any, any point like that, that is a big point in our life, uh, say something, and maybe it's, in, maybe it's even in frustration, you know, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't understand how you're letting this happen. I don't, I don't understand. Uh, but finally, hopefully, we get to that point of, you know, although I don't understand, I know that you have a good purpose and you will work through this, whatever it might be. Uh, so there's a difference between doing this in unbelief and doing it in faith. It's interesting that, you know, Jeremiah here never expresses unbelief. It's not as though he's turning and walking away from God. He's just, in effect, saying here, I don't get this. You know, you came to me and now I'm enduring all of this. I don't understand it. And notice there, God uh, very gently calls upon him to repent, in other words, to continue to follow, and he will restore him, all right? All right. We, I think rather than start on Romans 12, I'll just say one word about Romans 12. 
that first phrase there, let love be genuine. In the book of Romans, up until this point, the word love has only been used to talk about the love between God and us. Starting here in Romans 12, in fact, starting with this verse, is now, now the time when Paul starts talking about love not just to God or with God, but to one another. And that first phrase, let love be genuine, means without hypocrisy. In other words, love shouldn't be something that says one thing and does another. And then everything that follows from that point on is Paul describing how love is genuine. Okay? And uh, that's about as far as we're going to be able to go into this uh, for time reasons. But uh, you can go home and read this, and we'll certainly hear it next week uh, in church again. It'll be read as the epistle lesson next week. But Paul now is turning to the very practical, how do we live out love as members of the body of Christ here on this earth? In other words, from, from that first phrase on is Paul defining what genuine love is and how it works. Okay? All right. Thank you very much. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.